I think I was, a, um, I think I was married a year when this happened, 1991. Denise and I, my wife, went to bed one night, and I was so tired. It was summer. It was so hot in Virginia. And I woke up in the middle of the night, and this is embarrassing, but I woke up in the middle of the night, and my bed was soaked under me. And I was so embarrassed, I didn't want to tell Denise because I'm thinking, I've been married a year, and I'm wetting my bed. I'm going to be wearing Depends. I'm going to get a bag or something. So I never told her about it. But all day, I mean, it had a profound impact on me. All day, I'm walking around, I had to go to work, and I wouldn't look at anybody in the eye because I'm thinking I'm a bedwetter. I'm at 25 years old. My life is basically over as I knew it. So I went to bed that night, and I'm just praying, Lord, don't let me do that again. That, maybe that was just like a freak accident. I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning the second night, and now the entire side of the bed is soaked. And I, I woke up, Denise, I said, honey, I am... So embarrassed to tell you this, but I'm a bedwetter. I've never been one before, but I am now, and I don't know what's going on. And she goes, well, let's just change the sheets and put a towel under you. So we, we're doing that. She's so good to me. We're doing that. She said, well, you know what? Let's just unzip the top liner of our waterbed for a moment to see if it leaked through. And I said, all right, let's do that. We have a tubed waterbed, or we did. Never again after this. And to my ever wonderfully euphoric relief, there was a hole in one of the tubes of our waterbed. Now, how many people are excited about getting a leak in your waterbed? I was jumping up and down with joy. And never before that incident, and honestly, probably not since, did I ever appreciate self-control more than that. If you're a bedwetter and you're here among us and you're over five years old, listen, I understand your pain. I can counsel you. Come see me. But self-control is huge. Now, I'm going to ask you a question for a moment, and I want you to answer it privately. How many of you struggle in some area of your life with self-control? That was supposed to be private. You can't even control your arms. Some people have both arms up. I'm one of you. I would have both arms up too. Peter the Great, one of the mightiest of the czars of Russia, in an angry fit once struck his gardener who died a few days later, and it prompted Peter the Great to say this. He says, alas, I have conquered other nations, but I have not been able to conquer myself. Now, I'm pretty sure you can resonate with that. You can agree with that because I'm pretty sure, including me, not one of us has ever been able to conquer your own self. And Proverbs has something to say about that. It says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. It's a city that is with broken down walls, which according to Nehemiah, regarding Jerusalem, well, you're in great trouble and shame. So a Christian that lacks self-control, listen, here's what's happening. You're defenseless against the enemy's temptations. It's a critical virtue for Christians. So we're going to begin today by looking at the, at the means, well, actually at the meaning of self-control. We're going to then look at the meaninglessness of those who try to get self-control in their own strength. And then we're going to look at the means of self-control. 
I'll start with the first one, and I'm going to really be brief with the definition of self-control. I think it's fairly obvious. I'm going to be a little bit longer when it comes to the meaningless efforts for self-control. Then we're going to really look at, well, how do you acquire this virtue? So let's start with the first one, the meaning of self-control. Well, I told you it's obvious. Here's what it means. It comes from two concepts, out of and strength. That's the Greek word for it. So you combine those, and really what it means literally is to have strength to hold yourself in or to master yourself. That's what it means. It means to have the strength to master yourself. It's to have the power and the dominion over your impulses, over your emotions, your appetites, your desires. It's the Spirit's power to stay within God-given boundaries and rule over the desires of the flesh, which James says is really the crux of our problem. Chapter 1, but each person, James, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You've got a fishing imagery. You've got a reproductive metaphor. I mean, he combines these. And what you get is self-control is the spirit's power to not give in to the desires of the flesh. It's to interrupt the path of the desires of the flesh. It wants to conceive sin. Now, listen, you've got to look at me for a moment because this is really critical. You have in you and I have in me what are called the desires of the flesh. And they want to carry you away. They want to carry me away. And they want to give birth to sin. And so the Spirit of God, verse 16, chapter 5 of Galatians, the the Spirit of God interrupts that. It goes to war against those desires. And he enlists us into his army, and he teaches us how to fight. How do you interrupt the journey of the desires of the flesh before they conceive into sin? Self-control is the key. By the way, not one of these Other eight virtues, love, joy, peace, the rest of them, none of them work without self-control. Love is the goal of all of them, but self-control is the means for all of them to work. This is why it's so critical that we learn how to develop self-control. Let me tell you about a guy who did not have self-control. His name was Solomon. You've heard of him in the Bible, I'm sure. He writes of his own spiritual journey, his own lack of self-control. See if this does not resonate with you at one stage in your own life. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. But he came to see his need for self-control. Proverbs 4, he says, keep your heart with all diligence. That's self-control. For from it flow the springs of life. So we've got this definition for self-control. It really means to have dominion over your impulses, over your emotions, your appetites, and your desires. It means to gain mastery over them. But you know what? A lot of people throughout the age of humanity have tried to get this and failed spectacularly. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. So let's get all on the even playing field. Do you struggle with your thought life? Now, Christian, let's interact for a little bit, okay? Now, you you have to answer these questions. I can't answer them for you. You know yourself second best. God knows you best of anyone. So just interact for a moment. Do you struggle not only with your thought life, do you struggle with your speech? 
Well, do you struggle with your stomach? Meaning, gluttony. Meaning, you have an appetite for food that is voracious or drink that is voracious. Do you struggle with credit cards and debt and spending on things that you just want that you don't need? Do you struggle with your eyes looking at things that you do not need to look at? Do you struggle with your temper flying off the handle or reactively getting angry? Do you struggle with your attitude? Once you have a bad thing happen, there's almost no turning you around the rest of the day. You see, self-control masters these by mastering your heart. And what it does is it hits the pause, the pause button before you respond. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But let me take, take you back to the churches of Galatia. There was more than one church. There were several churches in the area of Galatia. And they struggled with some of the same things that we do, but they struggled with unrestraint. They were not restraining their desires. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. By the way, it's in that Bible in front of you, page 975. Let's all get our Bibles open because I'm going to take you to page 998 later on, and you're going to really need to see what the Word of God says. Verse 13, for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for the desires of the flesh, but through love serve one another. So some of the Christians in these churches were saying, well, we've been set free from, with, by Christ. We've been set free from the power and the penalty of sin, so we're free to live any way we want. It doesn't really matter. All of our sins are put on Christ. Let's indulge the flesh. But Alistair Begg, who is a, just a terrific preacher and theologian, he wrote this once, True freedom is not a license to do what we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. See, God has expectations. God has commands. God has desires. He's full of desires for us. It's called his will. He, there is a way that God wants us to respond in the midst of a situation. So he has set us free not to respond any way that we want, but he set us free and give us the power to be able to respond the way that he desires. Begg also said of self-control, we are held in bounds, but we are not held in bonds. And that's very deep when you begin to look at that, when you begin to really ruminate on that, begin to think on that. We are not or we are held in bounds within the lines of the boundaries that God has set by the power of the Spirit, but we're not held in bonds. Which I love what James says about the Word of God, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the Bible, the law of God, the law of liberty, of freedom, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So there's, there's not the unrestraint that is allowable for the Christian. Well, we're saved, right? We can live any way we want. Now, there's a restraint that the Spirit of God is wanting to teach us called self-control so that we are doers of the Word, so that our faith has hands and it has feet and it lives and it acts and it does the work and the will of God. 
See, there is a spirit-enabled doing that we've got to be about if we're to progress in spiritual maturity. Now, by the way, you know this, right? I'm sure that every Christian here, I mean, I really don't doubt this. I think every Christian here wants to keep growing in their faith. I'm hoping that there is a holy discontent in you. There is a divine discontent that says, I don't really want to stay where I'm at now. I want to really gain mastery over these impulses. I want to be able to have a pause button before I respond. I want to be able to think deeply before I feel. I want to act out truth rather than my emotions. I'm sure all of us want to grow in that. Well, the means to do that is the Spirit of God. There's a Spirit-enabled doing That is essential if you're going to progress in spiritual maturity. Uh, John Owen said it, well, quite graphically, as you're about to read. Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his own lusts. I mean, that's kind of evocative imagery, isn't it? Listen, there's a point where you've got to trample your lusts. There's a point where you and I have to step over your desires. We've got to stop them and the power that the Spirit gives us and gain mastery over them. Well, people throughout the dawn of human history have been trying to do this. How do you gain self-control? Well, we're going to get to that, but let me tell you how the world has tried to do it. You need to know this because this is the context into which Paul is writing. He's writing to these churches in Galatia. There were a lot of Greek people in there, a lot of Jews as well. It was really a melting pot church or churches. But the Greeks, now you you need to know this. The ancient Greeks prized self-control over every single virtue. There was not one virtue that they treasured more than self-control. So accordingly, obviously, they wrote a lot about it. They spoke a lot about it. Aristotle, you've heard of him. He said this, I count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who conquers his enemies. For the hardest victory is the victory over self. Do you not agree with that? So they created a Spock-like school of philosophy called the Stoics. Stoics, the Stoic uh, Greek people, they elevated self-control over anything else. They loved, they prized, they treasured it. They taught that you can learn to master your desires by killing them, by destroying them. Their goal was to squeeze desires out of your life. You see, the Stoics taught that if you can master yourself, if you can endure hardship and pain without feelings or complaining, you can be perfectly free. In fact, there's one legend that says there was a young Stoic who wanted to demonstrate his mastery over his impulses to everybody. So he took a fox, a fox, and he stuffed it up underneath his robe, and he stood on a marketplace street corner, And he stood there, and all the while, he didn't grimace. He wasn't in pain, but the fox began to bite, began to claw his stomach, and he finally fell over dead. And nobody even knew until he died that there was a fox under his tunic that had eaten its way through his stomach and taken out out his bowels. 
Isn't that a beautiful Saturday evening, Sunday morning story? Aren't you glad you're not part of the Stoic philosophy school? See, the problem has always been, now listen, I know you're going to get this because I get it. This was in me all week echoing around. A person cannot truly master desires in their own effort. We are controlled by them. But the response of many people, in fact, most people, you've got to try more desperately. You've got to use more radical attempts to control your desires. So many come to the solution then that they must end all desires. You've got to kill them all. You've got to destroy them. So here we go. We've got those who have struggled. These are true stories who have struggled with sexual urges. So they've had their reproductive organs removed. Or they're struggling with pornography. We even have this happening today. And they have their eyes gouged out. Or their hand cannot keep them from sin so they get it cut off. Or their tongue cannot stop stop sinning so they get it cut out. This happens all the time. It's always been happening. People want a radical solution. How do I gain mastery over myself? Now, you know what's ironic? The very first two leaders of the Stoic school of philosophy, Zeno and Cleanthes, committed suicide. That was their most radical attempt. I can't gain mastery any other way. The only way I've got left is to just end my life, which is what they did. Well, by the second century, a little bit after this book, Galatians, is written, a group of Christians called the Encratites forbade the eating of meat. They forbade getting married. They forbade drinking wine, all in an effort to destroy the desires of the body, and gain mastery over them. They hated the Apostle Paul who wrote Galatians. They despised his teachings. They rejected the entire book of Acts. But before the Enchrysites was the Jewish sect called the Essenes. And they lived in the desert, and they forbade wine, and they forbade marriage. Well, let's get a little bit more modern. Let's go to the 1970s, and you get this group or this movement called Transcendental Meditation. It promised world peace, by the way, in the 1970s. If people would just learn what we can teach you, there's going to be world peace. In Buddhism, there's nirvana. That's the place of perfect peace and happiness where all of your individual desires cease. How do you get there? Well, to the Buddhists, to the transcendental meditationists, well, it's meditation. You know, one of the latest meditation techniques... It's all the rage right now, all over the world, especially in America. It's called mindfulness. Perhaps you've heard of it. Here's what mindfulness is. It's the basic human ability to be fully present, fully aware of where you are, what you're doing, not overly reactive, not overwhelmed by what's going on around us. So they use meditation and mindfulness to get them to the place where they can gain total mastery over themselves. There's a report, I put it in the notes, you'll see it on the web, a report that was just published just recently looking at 20 studies on the effects of meditation techniques. Here's the result. Meditation doesn't reduce aggression. It doesn't reduce prejudice. It doesn't improve social connectedness. 
And all of a sudden, we're back to what we already know, trying to gain mastery over the desires of your flesh and your own power produces what I'm going to call wax fruit. It looks really good on the outside until you try to take a bite. It is incredibly spiritually unnutritious. See, walking by the Spirit is to put no confidence in your, your own ability or your ability alone to produce any of these nine virtues. It comes about, self-control does, as we surrender to the Spirit of God and we allow the Spirit's power to bring us into war. And that's really where we're going to spend the rest of this message. So we looked at the meaning of self-control. And I just took you quickly through a journey of the meaninglessness of our own efforts for self-control. I could give you a lot. We could spend weeks just talking about that. But let's spend the majority of our time on point number three. What are the means of self-control? Because I'm pretty sure that every one of you, as I do, want to know, how do you gain mastery over yourself? How do you gain control over these impulses that war against us? You might be at the point in life where you wonder if you're ever going to be, to be able to develop self-control. I mean, listen, don't raise your hand. But how many in the last month, this is called a rhetorical question, just deliberate in your own mind. How many in the last month said something that hurt somebody and you just wish you could have taken it back? How many in the last month committed sexual sin that you felt horrible for the next day? How many of you in the last month did drugs or got drunk? How many of you in the last month had a thought life that you are so thankful that nobody ever is going to see? See, I think I'm speaking a language that everybody understands. We need self-control. How do we get it? How can we develop self-control? Well, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to show you clearly what the Word of God says. But you've got to turn to the book of Titus. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew, it's 998. It's after the book of Timothy. Just go to your right in your Bible from the book of Galatians. You're going to run into it. And while you're going there, let me introduce the book of Titus. It was written to a young pastor in Crete. Which, now you got to really hear this because this is going to set up the need for us to learn this. Crete was an immoral place. It was filled with saloons. It was known as the first century party town. It would be today a favorite spring break destination. It really would. Paul quoted in this book a Cretan prophet. Chapter 1, verse 12, Titus 1, verse 12. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And you might think, man, Paul, did you have like a bad run-in with a Cretan person? No, this is just what they were like. It was an incredibly immoral place. And here's this young pastor. He's young. His name is Titus. He's been put at the point of, the, of this church, and Paul is writing to him and encouraging him. See, Crete was full of temptations. They were tripping up the new Christians that were in the Cretan churches. You know, you've got these Cretan love feasts that were drunken orgies. 
happening all around them. Purity was maddeningly difficult. Now listen, you ought to be probably thinking, well, it doesn't sound any different than America. It's really not any different. I mean, you really can't watch television for an evening without really, if you're going to master self-control, having to either close your eyes or turn the TV off. You're definitely not going to make it through a grocery store checkout line without having to avert your eyes. They might tell you that there's a church in every corner, but there's five bars in between. So we've got no shortage of opportunity. There is immorality everywhere around us, American citizen, and it really wasn't any different in Crete. So the desperate message of self-control would have been drunk in like a sponge. Look what Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 8, speaking to the elders. You've got to be self-controlled. He tells the older women, you've got to be self-controlled likewise. He doesn't use a word, but you've got to be likewise. You've got to be sober-minded. This is chapter 2, verse 2. You've got to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. These are the older men. And then you get to the older women, you've got to be likewise, reverent in, in your behavior. You cannot be addicted to wine. You've got to live self-controlled. Why? Because look at verse 4. You've got to train the young women to love their, their husbands and children to be self-controlled. Well, you might think, well, man, I, if, you're over, if you're under 25, you're off the hook. Well, look at verse 6. Younger men were taught to be self-controlled. So every gender, there's only two of them, both genders and every age are taught to be self-controlled. It's a universal problem. But how? Paul is so brilliant. He's going to just so plainly teach us the means of self-control. So let me give you a few of them. There's going to be one more you're not going to see on your notes. I'm going to add it in a little bit later. Here's the first one. You've got to drum this into your mind. You've got to get this down to the bottom of your soul. Self-control is a work of grace. Every one of us will tend to walk out of here maybe feeling a little convicted, maybe feeling very convicted, depending on how your week or your day went. Maybe you've just gotten in a fight with your spouse. Maybe you just flew off the handle with one of your kids or one of your parents. Maybe you had a really bad week with a coworker where you're just not kind or a classmate. So you might walk out of here convicted. And usually when we do, what we do is try to double down and try harder. You are going to fail if you do that. And I am going to fail if I do that which I often try to do. So I'm actually speaking from experience. If you try to get your own power to be able to gain self-control and self-mastery, you are doomed to never find it. It is a work of grace, as all of these virtues are. And look what Paul writes in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now look where it goes. 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So that grace of God that saved you, Christian brother and sister, is the same grace of God that is teaching and training you to be able to say no to your own desires, to renounce them, to defeat them, to step over them, like John Owen says, to be able to say, not anymore. You will not be in control. But what is grace? Well, I could give you two versions of the pop definition of grace. Neither one of them really get to the theological power of it. I could tell you this one. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's one of them. And that's not wrong, by the way. It's just not adequate. Or I could tell you the very, very popular one. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. I could tell you that one, but that's really not going to get to the power of grace. If you want to get to the power of grace, you've got to be able to get to the point where you understand God's grace is his loving willingness to remove sin. That's always the deepest part of the biblical message of grace. It is God's loving willingness to remove the sin in your life that is keeping you separate from him. See, grace makes it possible to have a relationship with God, which is why Paul always writes this order, grace and peace to you. He doesn't ever flip that. He never says peace and grace because you cannot have peace with God to be joined with him until sin is removed and the power to remove sin from our hearts is grace. You got to get that down in there, all right? So grace is the key, step number one, to gaining the mastery over yourself. Look at verse 13. He clearly tells us this grace has a name. He says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So here we go. You ready? The Spirit of God is taking the character and the virtue that Jesus perfectly lived And he is pouring them into our hearts as we walk with him so that we look more like Jesus, we respond more like Jesus, we love more like Jesus, we react more like Jesus, we desire what Jesus desired, we hate what Jesus hated. This is what the Spirit of God's doing. He's making you like Christ. And in the process, you're learning to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. But it goes on. Number two, self-control is a work of grace-trained obedience. It's a work of grace-trained obedience. You see, grace not only changes us from a sinner to a saint. Oh, this is huge. This is so radically big that I really wish I could just take the entire message and just keep telling you what I'm about to tell you over and over. Not only does he change us from a sinner to a saint, he puts inside us 
At the very moment of salvation, a new heart. And that new heart wants new things. It's not any longer satisfied with old things. Now, you'll understand this as you keep growing. There's times in my life, sad to say, where I've kind of longed, as the Old Testament says, to go back to Egypt, go back to a sin that I used to cherish. And so I tried it out a little bit. And you know what? It was incredibly unsatisfying. And afterwards, as I confess this to the Lord, I'm going, God, what was I thinking? Why did I think that Egypt had satisfaction in it when it was my place of slavery? I don't want to ever go back there again. Give me the power to go forward. That power to go forward and not backward is self-control. You see, we cannot develop self-control in our own strength. Neither, this is huge. Please listen to this. Because we all know this first part. There's people that don't know the second part. You cannot develop self-control in your own strength. Everybody knows this. But you also cannot develop it if you don't fight for it. If you think you can just let go and let God, and you're going to grow in your Christian walk, you're going to progress in sanctification, you're not going to make it anywhere. You're stalled. You just hit the pause button on your own spiritual maturity. See, Jesus not only saves us, he is training us. Well, what's he training us for? He's training us to fight. He's training us to battle against the desires of the flesh. He's not going to fight the battles for you. Now, that sounds almost heretical. There's even T-shirts that say, he will fight your battles. He's not going to fight your battles for you. He's going to fight them with you. And it's his strength that will give you victory. But you've got to pick up the sword. He trains my hands for battle, the psalmist says. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. So if you think that you could just, you know what, open your Bible and pray, and all of a sudden you're going to not have any more desires of the flesh that are going to war against you, you are going to be in for a rude awakening. You must get up armed for battle, and you will win it in his power. Willpower is not the issue in self-control. Grace-trained obedience is. So are you walking with the Spirit of God? Are you being led by the Spirit of God so he can train you for war against your flesh, the temptations of the world, the strategies of the enemy? Listen, if you try and defeat them in your strength, you're going to usually lose. Grace warfare is done in the strength of Jesus Christ when you obey the captain of your souls. So when you begin walking down that path, that's going to carry you into sin, and all of a sudden, the Spirit of God begins to convict you. That is the precise moment that your victory is at hand or your failure is at hand. You're at a critical juncture. Will I be led by the Spirit or will I be led by the desires of my flesh? And if you want to win that battle, then you appeal to the one who has the power and you say, where do I need to thrust the dagger? The Word of God. Robbie Zacharias says this, Lord, wake me up in the morning with an eagerness to meet you in the word. You know why? Because Robbie Zacharias, the great giant of apologetics in our own day, does not naturally desire to read God's word. He admits this. 
So he prays that prayer before he goes to bed every night. Lord, you've got to wake me up with an eagerness to get in your word because by my own self, I won't get there. But when you wake up and you open the scriptures, you renounce the temptation to check Facebook. How many of you do that? You you know what? You got the Bible on your lap? But then you know what? Let me just check Facebook real quick. Or let me check the weather because I got to dress appropriately. Which then goes to the news because I need to know what's happening. And then, you know what? I can't read the Bible with dishes in the sink. And before you know it, your morning is gone. You got to get going. And once again, you did not dress for battle. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body to keep it under control. Listen, this is what it means, grace-driven obedience. You've got to discipline your body. If you think, you know, I don't need to discipline my body. I let the Spirit of God do it. The Spirit of God is going to say, I'm telling you what to do. It's in my word. You've got to discipline the bat- your body. You've got to get your, your bronze bow up. You've got to get dressed for battle. And then we fight this war, struggling, Colossians 1, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's not a let go. It's not a let God. It's get in the battle with the power of the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. You got to fight in his power. And then thirdly, grace teaches us to say no to wrong, but you got to get the other end of that. And yes to right. You see, self-control is not just negative. It's not just saying, i got to say no to all the bad things. It's that we need help to say yes to the good things. Training us, verse 12, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, the slogan of self-control is not just say no like Nancy Reagan introduced. It is the power to say no to wrong and yes to right. Do you like C.S. Lewis? Have you ever read any of his writings? And perhaps if you have, you've read The Screwtape Letters, which is an incredibly insightful little book on spiritual warfare. The Screwtape Letters is a collection of 31 letters from a senior demon whose name was Screwtape, he made all this up, it's fictional, written to his nephew, Wormwood. And it was all about how to guide this unnamed man by the only name he gets in the entire book is the name Patient. How do you, first of all, prevent him from getting saved? Well, he did get saved in the book, so how do you prevent him from growing in Christ? So Screwtape writes to his nephew Wormwood all of these insightful little demonic nuggets of worldly wisdom. And one of the most insightful parts of the book is what I'm going to read to you, and you can see it on the screen. Watch or listen. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure, this is Screwtape to Wormwood, when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense... On the enemy's ground. That's God. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is 
God's invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Now, as that stays up there for a moment and let it sort of echo around in your mind, especially that last statement, is the enemy doing this to you? To take pleasures which God has given you, but take them at times or in ways or in degrees which God has forbidden. You see, self-control is the means to enjoy the pleasures of God in the right way, at the right time, and in the right degree. It's the grace of God, it's the virtue of Christ, and enables you to go to war against the desires of the flesh and receive and enjoy the desires of God so that you can say with the psalmist, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Which is why Solomon wrote that God gives his people the power to enjoy what God gives, Ecclesiastes 5. You ever seen that before? Did you know that the Spirit of God, Christian brother and sister, is giving you the power to enjoy the gifts of God? He doesn't just give gifts. He gives you the power to enjoy them. But there's one final point that I want to make. Actually, it's only going to take a few minutes. Grace makes us responsible for one another. Now, let me say this really super clearly. It is not the design of God that you learn self-control on your own. It is the design of God that we help each other learn self-control. The very same spirit of God that's working in you to change your desires and training you to live self-controlled. Listen, he has adopted you, Christian brother, into his family. Can you let that settle into your mind for a moment? Christian, you've been brought into the family of God. You've got brothers and sisters. The heavenly father is your heavenly father. And Jesus is your brother. You're never alone. There are brothers and sisters all around you to encourage you, to help you, to admonish you, to pray for you. And look at verse 15 in Titus. This is where Paul is getting at this. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. We need to hear the word of God from one another. We need one another's help to live self-controlled lives. Friends, being in a local church is all about having around you those who will invest in you to fight the desires of the flesh, to help you live out the power of God to enjoy his gifts. But as I recap this in about 40 seconds, 30 seconds, let all of this trickle into your mind as we bring this to a close. Here we go. Self-control is the power of God to live the gifts of God out. And this is the great beauty of this spirit-produced grace-fought virtue. It is a heart being mastered by Jesus. 
Listen, if you really want self-control, you've got to be mastered by Jesus. He really just cannot be your Savior. He must become your Lord. You must make him and recognize him as being the one to whom you owe all things and from whom all things are possible. And you walk with him, and he gains mastery over your heart. He fights against the, the desires of the flesh with his spirit. And as he masters those, you begin to be able to live underneath that in control of your desires. And against such things, Paul writes in Galatians 5, there is no law. You know what that means? It means even the unbelievers have no laws against these virtues. They want them to. That's why I told you about Aristotle. He wanted self-control. Who does not want love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? The world wants them. Everybody wants them. So against them, there is no law anywhere. Certainly, God has no law against them. He wants all of us to have them in increasing measure, but no law can create them. Did you hear that? No law can create these virtues. Only the Spirit of God can create them, and he will produce them from within his own people as we walk with him. How do you do that? That's going to be the entire subject of the final sermon in this series. I hope you're here next week to hear it. Let's pray.